thrill is gone Gone, gone away Yes, the thrill is gone Thrill is gone, gone President gone Trump to stay. Baby, you've done me wrong You'll be sorry someday The thrill is gone Gone, gone from me you baby you leave your magic well but now I can't forget you cause I'm free free from your spell the thrill is gone 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 for good baby's all over I carry on that's understood Good morning everybody you're listening to Labor and Love Radio whether you like it or not <laughs> This is the B and it's Saturday morning 10 to 12 every Saturday morning we come to you live from Mutiny Radio here on 21st and Florida Streets, 2781, 21st to be exact, in the heart of the Mission District, El Mero Mero. This is Labor and Love, the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else work for that dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table where you work, the negotiating table that is, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Good morning to you all. Hope you had a good week and good work. We started off this morning with two guys named Dave Alexander. One of them, uh, Welch, Irish 
folk singer sang Working Man and it's a beautiful rendition of the life of a coal miner and how he's so happy that he doesn't have to go down underground again. Generations, generations of men and families sacrificed their lives to the coal industry and got precious little for it. The second was Dave Alexander, the pianist, who later changed his name, I believe, to Omar Khayyam. Might be wrong about that, but he he played jazz piano around uh, and blues piano around the Bay Area for many years, and that was the classic St. James Infirmary. And then to cap, the, cap it off, cap off the first set, we had Roy Hawkins and the original version of The Thrill Is Gone, certainly not as haunting and dripping with sadness as B.B. King's, a little jumpier, perhaps. Well, this is Labor and Love Radio, Labor and News Commentary, Opinion, History, Interviews, You name it. And this is Mutiny Radio, where in March we are headquarters for, well, let me read the whole thing. The Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, a yearly event. This is the fourth one, I believe. And comics come from all over the country. And I'm saying, and literally, Comics come from all over the country and and put on a show. They come up and they do their routines and uh, the place is mobbed, okay? Please come on down. Whether you're a comedian or a comedian, uh, someone who appreciates comedy, uh, come on down to Mutiny Radio. Five days of of shows, of comedy shows. This week on Labor and Love Radio, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about 13 things white people don't don't realize. We're going to talk about no one nobody took fascists seriously with the two Francescas and we've got our regular labor labor beat right-wing media and Britain says Britain's free healthcare system is on the verge of imploding is that true and Ralph Nader talking about market fundamentalism and how it gets into every aspect of our lives and then the labor beat. Let's see if I can get that up. Labor beat is our things I find on the web, and I put them uh, on my website, uh, the website for this show, Labor and Love Radio. So every week we have. Uh, Every week we have like a compendium of 
stories. Here's our, here's what we tell you every week. So you're just not that into politics? Your boss is. Your landlord is. Your insurance company is. And every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, to raise your rent and deny you coverage. It's time to get into politics. What about the Amazon $3 billion deal? with Amazon that the state of New York did. Labor needs to get back to its roots. First paraprofessional-led teacher strike. Pension gamble. Okay, yeah, we're, we've got a full complement of things to do here. As always, we've got Labor Radio. So let's start Labor Radio, our labor news from all over the world, a good place to start. Starlight, star bright, twinkling peacefully While the pack waits for the kill Susan works late, then she walks by the river The water's so deep and so still Hungry eyes flat This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour Someone sleeping, she won't move at all. 
And as the ambulance screams her to nowhere And no one dares look under the sheet Once again evening is falling With a taste of blood on its teeth Let's take back the night To walk the streets where we choose Take back the night And make it safe for everyone to use quiet in memory her parents pray to understand a rage grows deep in her lover determined that the senseless shall end now out on the street there's a service with thousands of candles for light Let's take back the night To walk the streets when we choose Take back the night And make it safe for everyone to use Take back the And finally, I want to, uh, you know, suggest that, that we think about the larger picture, um, the assault against affirmative action, the increasing conservatism. You know, I, I, th I don't think I'm going to forget the way those uh, buildings that, the, that focus on the family complex look for a long time. I mean, that is, that is amazing. Uh, that is amazing. And it's not that, that we don't want to focus on um, our families. But the family is used in this um, ideological way. I mean, who is the real family, right? The real family is generally nuclear. Um, um, the father works. The mother's supposed to stay at home and be a good wife and mother. So the single mother is not, a, and her children, they don't count as a family. Um, there's a great deal of homophobia that is implied by that particular construction of the family. 
uh, so that gays and lesbians who have families don't have, quote, real families, according to uh, these uh, people over there on the hill. Um, so, you know, I don't, I believe, I truly believe that those who are really committed to the kind of conservative politics that is messing up our lives today are the, major, are the minority of people in this country. Oh, that was a slip. I hope that, uh, <laughs> I mean, they look like the majority. But that's because the rest of us are relatively silent. And I want to urge every single one of you who have come out to uh, participate in this community building moment to think very deeply about what you can do to make a difference. Thank you very much.
This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour. This is a Radio Labour World Report recorded on Friday, November 16th, 2018. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, a new global initiative aimed at equal pay for work of equal value. Hotel workers around the world are fighting back. The Labor Start reported about World Union events and singing. When you're too old to work, too old to work. When you're too old to work, and you're too young to die. This is Radio Labor. The United Nations and civil society groups, including labor unions, have committed themselves. Pardon me. That was the wrong. Radio Labor Report. This is the... This, this is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, November 16th, 2018. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, a new global initiative aimed at equal pay for work of equal value. Hotel workers... This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, November 23rd, 2018. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, why the fast fashion industry needs to slow down and work with unions. Israeli unions are threatening a national strike in support of Palestinian construction workers. The Labor Start report about union events around the world and singing... For every stitch of clothing, someone sweats away unseen. While tangled threads of justice unravel at the seams. This is Radio Labor. The global union, which represents garment workers around the world, is calling on governments and companies to focus on better quality clothes and respect for labor rights. See Marie Ainsborough reports. A parliamentary committee in the UK studying the fashion industry has been told that problems must be addressed at the country level where the clothes are being produced. Jenny Holdcroft, an assistant general secretary of Industrial, told the committee that the companies must work with the global unions and the unions in the countries. Industrial is the global union which represents garment workers. Committee members asked Ms. Holdcroft how easily consumers could tell if companies respect freedom of association, the right to join a labor union. Yeah, and this is the difficult thing, and it's difficult to communicate to consumers because it's many companies will say that they're doing all of these things, and this is a sort of the danger of reporting, and, and like they'll give themselves a big tick. But the question is for the consumer and for any of us to understand what are they actually really doing. Now, every company will tell you that freedom of association is respected in their supply chains because they they are sourcing from countries that have ratified the ILO Convention on Freedom of Association, therefore everything's okay. Of course, the reality is very different from that. So it's fair to say, yes, we're sourcing from countries that on paper have legislation. It's not ideal, but it's, you know, most of it is not that bad. It's the enforcement of that legislation. And this is where companies have a strong role to play. So the measure for us is to what extent are the companies working with us to solve these issues directly concerning workers, because the workers are our members, or should be if they only had an opportunity to join a trade union, which they don't. So we measure companies on the basis of are they prepared to actually 
actually sit down and talk to us about how they need to be working with their suppliers to ensure that the suppliers are not using the laws to abuse the situation. I mean, the unions, when they try to organise, they face every kind of, of hostility from employers. They get sacked, they get arrested, they get beaten up, they get killed in some circumstances. It's a huge, huge challenge. What we need companies to do is to send a message to their suppliers that this is unacceptable. And if you want to do business with us, you've got to stop these practices. So we have a number of ways that we engage with companies. We have our gold standard, if you like, is we have global framework agreements with individual companies. We only have one with a UK company, which is ASOS. And that's a fairly recent one. And uh, we're working with them. I mean, our goal is to work directly with the companies in the supplier countries, with the factories that they're sourcing from, to say to those factories, you have to allow workers to have access to a trade union. And that means allowing them to actually have contact with them and if they choose to organise, allowing them to do that. And that sounds very simple, but it is incredibly rare. The norm is to resist that unionisation effort. So, of course, that means that the workers themselves have no means of influencing their wages, their working hours, etc., etc. The other thing that I would measure uh, companies on is what are they doing about the way that they do business with their suppliers. Yes, we, we know about the living wage, how important that is, but it's unrealistic to say to a company, we expect you to be paying a living wage, because that, that's too many steps down the chain removed from their business. What we want to know is what are they paying to the factories? And I think this is something that requires a lot more scrutiny. We're working with a group of companies at the moment to open up their purchasing practices. It's incredibly complicated. How do you price a, a piece of um, clothing? How do you decide what is fabric, what is overheads, what is the price that actually goes to workers, what about indirect workers who aren't directly sewing but might be mopping the floors. It's incredibly complicated. But this is the thing that determines the outcome for the workers. And this, it's also linked to this high, high volume thing because if the workers were paid properly, they could be still getting a decent wage, not producing quite the same volume of clothing. You would have better quality clothes that are fewer but guarantee wages. So it all comes down to what is the business relationship between the company and the factories that it's sourcing from. You can hear an extended version of Ms. Holcroft's presentation on the Radio Labor website. Workers in Israel have called for a national strike to support Palestinian construction workers who are fighting to win better safety conditions. 80% of construction workers in Israel are Palestinians. More than 20 have been killed on the job since the start of the year. The strike in support of Palestinian construction workers is being supported by many unions in Israel, including the powerful National Transportation Workers Union. The president of the union, Avi Edri spoke in support of the construction workers at a recently held global congress of the International Transport Workers Federation, the ITF. Let's talk about improving the life of Palestinian workers. Let's talk about the solidarity that I, as a strong union, can give to Palestinian workers. I have an excellent example for my words. There's 85,000 construction workers in Israel. 70,000 of them are Palestinians, meaning 83% of the construction workers in Israel are Palestinians. Unfortunately, 
From the beginning of the year, 37 construction workers were killed at their own workplace. 26 of them were Palestinians. Due to this, my federation, the Stadrut, announced on the 7th of October this year a general dispute on the issue of safety of construction workers in Israel. Meaning, if the government will not improve the safety of construction workers, all the workers in Israel, including the transport workers, will strike a solidarity with the construction workers. My union does not represent the construction workers in Israel. And still, the workers of transport union in Israel will strike for the safety of Palestinians' workers. This is our job. This is our role as unions. We are not governments. Let governments from both sides do their job that they were elected by the people to do. And let us do our job that our workers elected us to do. To my brothers from Palestine, only we can solve our problems. Let's work together with the support of the ITF to improve the lives of our workers. I have no doubt that if we will work together as unions, we will inspire our governments to work together as governments. Be'ezrat Hashem, insha'Allah, with God's helps, we will bring a real peace between us. Here's Labor Star correspondent Derek Blackadder with his report about union events around the world. Here's a tiny sample of the hundreds of union news stories in 31 languages added to our site each day last week. Our top stories section included links to coverage of the unsuccessful efforts to repress strikes and protests by Iranian teachers and steel workers. The massive rally in South Korea as workers there demanded the labor law reforms politicians have been promising them. And the sit-in at an Indonesian Coca-Cola plant as workers resisted sackings. We had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. Libyan university workers were demanding to be paid and provided with basic equipment and supplies. Amazon workers in Germany organized a one-day walkout on Black Friday, one of the company's busiest days of the year. Indian union activists describe ride-hailing app workers as, quote, the new oppressed, as Uber drivers park their cars in a protest over poverty-level wages. Striking pharmacy workers were hit with rubber bullets as they continued their strike in South Africa. Public transport drivers refused to collect fares but continued to carry passengers for a day in an effort to gain the New Zealand living wage. Their employer responded by docking the workers a day's pay. The series of strikes against Marriott Hotels in the United States started to show results with workers in Boston winning a new contract after six and a half weeks on the picket line. And workers in all sectors joined a national strike over the planned relaxation of laws defining the hours of work in South Korea. 
Our top working women's stories included coverage of the national campaign in Canada by migrant care workers to organize for their own protection, the release of a union study on World Toilet Day that shows how many workplaces do not extend toilet dignity to women in the United Kingdom, and a profile of the woman leading the struggle by women laborers in southern India. The free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about the strike by Greek municipal workers over the high injury rate they experience and a lack of proper protective equipment, the rise in racist attacks on American public sector workers, and the fight to end the New Zealand practice of handcuffing mentally ill prisoners to corrections officers for days at a time. Currently, Labor Start is running three online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here are the low-tide drifters with every stitch. In New York's garment district, It ain't over yet 
struggle And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can find our feature stories and daily newscasts at www.radiolabor.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Labor. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. That was your weekly radio labor report about labor actions all over the world, and they referred to hotel strikers. Um, Here in San Francisco, the hotel strike now has gone on for, I believe, six weeks. And um, one of the problems is that sometimes unions, in this case Local 2, are... Well, in some cases, making enemies when they should be making friends. And I'm referring specifically to Local 2's campaign against a place called Family House. So I have to admit that the CEO of Family House is my sister, Alexandra Morgan, who, by the way, has just transformed the place, tripled the number of... uh, They provide uh, housing for families whose kids are going through cancer therapy, at mostly at UC Med Center. So they provide free housing and food to the families so that person, that child, can be with their family and the family can be with their child while they go through the treatment. Well, now she's been targeted by Local 2, uh, who are striking uh, downtown hotels. She wants to have her fundraiser, her scheduled fundraiser, in one of those hotels. And um, they've been picketing her, and she said they went to her house, and they're talking about her personally and giving out her phone number. And uh, while I have perfect sympathy for what the strikers are doing, I think they need to take a look at the nature of the people that they're picketing and harassing. And when I say harassing, I don't mean it wrong. They shouldn't be wrong. I think in this case, they're wrong. Uh, My sister has always been a union person, but they're making enemies in the community. My sister's place, Family House, serves poor communities of people who have cancer. Where where do they come from? They come mostly from the Central Valley. They're mostly farm worker families. And uh, <clears throat> these people don't need to get into their mind the idea that the union is, you know, threatening Family House. Their saying says, Family House does not respect families. Any rate, just a caveat to the leaders of those strikes. I mean, there are different situations. You can't apply the same tactics to everyone. Hopefully something about this, something 
will uh, work out. Okay, right-wing media says Britain's free healthcare system is on the verge of imploding. Is that true? This is on the Real News Network. Let's run that now. More Americans are becoming dissatisfied with an increasingly costly healthcare system that produces substandard results. We take a close look at Britain's experiment with government-run healthcare that remains popular but is facing mounting challenges. The NHS or National Health Service turned 70 this year. Meanwhile, despite spending more on healthcare than any other country, Americans continue to be worse off. The United States is the only large, wealthy country without universal coverage. Polls show record support for single-payer health care, even among a majority of Republicans. And an increasing number of Democratic officials have voiced their support. The progressive Democrats are vowing to give some form of free single-payer health care. Let's give the taxpayers of the United States a better return on their investment, which means Medicare for all. A majority of House Democrats have already signed up for socialist health care. It doesn't work. It's good if you don't mind waiting like five weeks to see a doctor. In Britain, the NHS continues to have high approval ratings. Patients don't pay anything to see a doctor, and all prescriptions cost about $10. We have the Commonwealth Institute report, which comes out every couple of years, about health care, particularly in the top, in the G7, G8 type countries. And the NHS consistently comes number one. But the NHS does face its challenges. Under the cover of austerity, we've had a deliberate defunding of healthcare in this country, so it hasn't kept up with demand. Horror stories coming out of the UK where they've had uh, socialized medicine for, for decades. Some of them are outlined in this recent piece published in Forbes titled UK's Healthcare Horror Stories Ought to Curb Dems' Enthusiasm for Single Payer. For a response, we spoke to two British doctors. Dr. Bob Gill of London and Dr. John Wright of Bradford. So I think it's ill-informed and I think if you work in the hospital where I work or in with my GP colleagues then if you need to see a doctor if it's urgent you can see them within minutes or hours um, if it's not so urgent you can see them with hours or days. The reality is the Republicans and Donald Trump represent the interests of big business and corporations and they're the people who have got most to fear from socialized medicine. The article says the NHS is, quote, imploding. Vacancies for doctors and nurse positions reached an all-time high. Patients are facing interminable wait for care as a result. Every, every health service is struggling with the demand. Um, we have more doctors and nurses than we've ever had in this country. And the NHS, like other health services internationally, has grown to meet increasing demand. But what happens is that um, su that supply, that, that demand grows faster than the supply of services. So we're always training new doctors, training new nurses to try and keep up. And you know, there, there may be some vacancy issues in some areas, but you know, a hospital like mine, we have um, five, 6,000 staff, and we have a very small vacancy rate. You're seeing the NHS performance decline on multiple levels, waiting times, delays in treatment, but this is deliberate. How else could a government get away with privatizing a system which is functioning well? 
So you have to manufacture a crisis, and that's what the defunding has done. So the headlines you quote are real. The NHS I'm trying to defend is not the original NHS. It's a part privatized system which is being set up to fail. The problem is one of supply and demand. Single-payer systems offer, quote, free care, so patients have no incentive to moderate their demand for care. But government cannot procure enough supply to meet that demand without bankrupting taxpayers. Government officials' only option is to ration care. So one of the, one of the challenges, and this is a, a, this is a big issue around the UK-US comparison, so the UK spends around 8% of its GDP on healthcare, whereas the US spends 16-70% of its GDP. So twice as much per GDP per capita. Um, and what happens when you grow healthcare supply is that you start treating unnecessarily and you over-medicalise what's going on. Well, this is applying market ideology and market terminology to healthcare. I'm a family physician. Nobody comes to my waiting room demanding care if they don't feel they need it or they don't feel they genuinely have a concern. People do not access healthcare for the fun of it. People access healthcare based on need. So to apply market justifications to healthcare is completely bogus. And despite what American critics say, polls have consistently found that Britons would even support raising taxes to increase funding for the NHS. Meanwhile, some argue Americans need more than just a free national health service to address its inequities. I think free access to health care is really important um, uh, and makes a, a difference to health. But uh, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't get rid of the health inequalities between higher and lower social class people, higher and lower income people, um, because the nature of social and economic life is a more important determinant of health than the, the quality of the health care you get. Unequal results are the natural byproduct of societal inequity, argues Professor Richard Wilkinson. But a whole range of health and social problems are worse. So for instance, the United States has amongst the lowest life expectancy in the developed world. It has the highest rates of homicide. Uh, it has uh, high rates of teenage births, high rates of obesity, uh, very large prison populations, um, low levels of child well-being, low levels of social mobility. The only surprise is that they get worse amongst almost the whole population. The biggest effects of increased inequality are the bottom of the social ladder, but even middle class people with good incomes and jobs and so on, education, uh, would do better in all those ways if they lived in a more equal society. So they might live a bit longer, um, the, they'd be less likely to be victims of violence, uh, their children might do a little bit better at school. Stay tuned for our next report from England. We'll look at gun violence in the United States and the United Kingdom. For The Real News, this is Jessel Noor. Okay, that's a real More news Americans are becoming dissatisfied. Report about single payer, uh, specifically the British system of healthcare. Everybody knows single payer is the best thing. Mr. Trump thinks that by calling it socialist healthcare, he's going to smear it and people won't want it. All right, 
One of the Francescas now, Francesca Fiorentini, talking about Raise your right hand. Fascists. Oops, fascism. Yes, Donald Trump took his Hitler cosplay to the next level by commanding his followers to pledge allegiance to him via an alarmingly familiar hand gesture. I do solemnly swear. You didn't see it coming, did you? You were too busy trying to get Beyonce tickets to notice the actual formation happening right in front of you. Wikipedia defines fascism as radical authoritarian nationalism. That is until January 2017 when Wikipedia will just become this. Okay, but beyond a cadre of creepy youth, the tweeting of Mussolini quotes, and keeping the sequel to Mein Kampf on your nightstand, which is really all we need to know, what makes a fascist? A Hitler, or Mussolini, or Franco? Based on studies, here are a few telltale signs to look out for. First, they must have a strongman complex. We will win, and we will win, and we will win. Espouse intense nationalism. We're gonna make America great again, and you'll say, okay. Silence political dissent. Get them out of here. Throw them out. Bully the media. We're gonna open up those libel laws. With me, they're not protected. Bully the weak. Uh, I don't know what I said, uh. Celebrate ignorance. I love the poorly educated. Celebrate violence. And I'd bring back a hell of a lot worse than waterboarding. Fear immigrants. We need to build a wall. Fear religious minorities. Total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. And have a messed up dong. I guarantee you there's no problem, I guarantee. Oh, there's totally a problem. But Trump isn't just fascist, he's a rash fascist. A rashist, one who makes rash decisions as a matter of policy unless he doesn't feel like it. But what are the conditions that help a country stumble into, oops, fascism? Well, in the case of Italy, fascism arose when the country was broke after spending so much money on World War I and was plagued with unemployment. Now, I could point out how that parallels America's current condition, but in Trump's America, there are no parallels, only perpendiculars. And Mussolini was also a showman, according to this 1929 news clip. Mussolini likes the spectacular. You can always depend on Mussolini to put on a good show. Oh my God. If I find out Mussolini's catchphrase was you're fired in Italian. Two other things needed for fascism, economic crisis, and a bunch of political elites who underestimate your strength, which is in part what gave Adolf his popularity. Even though Chancellor Hitler is often considered by some to be power-hungry and tempestuous, some German watchers believe he will be less dangerous in government office than he is in the street commanding his stormtroopers. Less dangerous in government? Oh my god. The scariest part is even everyday Germans, Spanish, and Italians didn't take the threat of fascism seriously. Just take a look at this archival footage that we recently recovered. Far-right nationalism has gripped Europe, but what do Europeans think of their up-and-coming politicians? Hitler, he tells it like it is and is nein afraid to speak his mind. He simply says that we're all sinking, yeah. He represents the silent majority. All the things he say about Islam, he only yoking is the yoke. Ay, mamma mia, he, how you say, not politically correcta. Mussolini, he want to make Italia grande again. And the last thing to know about fascists, if they don't win, they come back. So let's all promise that we will not be fooled by fascists.
Okay, Francesca Fiorentini with uh, her take on the coming of fascism in these United States. And uh, I would say it's here. Part of the country is fascist. Part of the country is uh, committed to the ideas of one person. And... uh, It's, I can't say I think everybody, you know, who votes for Trump believes in him, but Trump's enemies are their enemies. Trump sells them a bill of, bill of goods that uh, they're under attack and they need to resist uh, who? People like Hillary Clinton? Like Obama said, when you win, you're supposed to get happy. <laughs> but, uh, People didn't. People don't seem happy, and they can't be happy because then they would have to admit that they won, <laughs> and they got nothing to complain about. Okay, in the Pacific Northwest, this is popular resistance. By the way, that was uh, um, Francesca Fiorentini. The first paraeducator-led strike of the teacher uprising. Paraeducators in Port Angeles, Washington, are on strike. And this year's wave of teacher strikes is the first one led by paraeducators. Teachers have refused to cross the picket lines, shutting down the district schools Thursday and Friday. The 115 paraeducators in this small coastal city, just across the water from Canada, assist with everything from reading lessons to recess. Paraeducators play an essential role in today's schools. I can certainly vouch for that. Offering extra attention and care to students who need it, especially those with disability. So the teachers are are being dared to cross picket lines put up by their paras. Strikers are pushing the school district to grant wage increases they say they're owed from state money. Currently, they make between $15.68 and $19.55 an hour. Most work six hours or less a day. This was always the first thing to cut when you sat down to put together your school budget. This was always a soft number that uh, people felt uh, could be decreased. Some are single mothers and take home so little that their kids qualify for free and reduced lunches at the school, said Terry Rothweiler, a 24-year-old paraeducator. We told our members last week we either need to roll over and accept how they want to treat us or stand up for ourselves. 87 to 4. 87 to 4, they voted to go out. School officials initially planned to open schools during the strike, but changed their minds when the teachers' union said it wouldn't cross the picket line. The district wasn't 
really taking them seriously because they just figured they'll try to run the schools without them. The teachers' vote forced the district's hand, and now they seem to be bargaining. A teacher named Pickens. Okay, uh, paraeducators in the neighboring Sakim School District settled a contract in October that will raise wages by 15.9% over the next two years, with a starting salary set at 1843. Even there, you're talking. Make, you're making twenty dollars an hour. You work a six-hour day. That's one twenty. That's six hundred a week. Times four. Couple thousand. You, you can't, you can't live on a couple thousand. You got kids? No. Anyway, look it up at popularresistance.org. The first paraeducator-led teacher strike. Okay, Labor and Love Radio. Pension theft. Now, this is one to watch. This is the story of uh, pensions and what's happening with them. It's an hour long. I think it's a frontline piece. Uh, about pension theft. And this is really where the labor meets the road, as we say in our intro. Um, for the longest time, people who had pensions had what's called a defined benefit pension, where you're guaranteed. You put in a certain amount every month, and you're guaranteed a certain amount when you retire. And uh, gradually companies decided they didn't want to do this. They didn't want to provide pensions. So they something was invented called the 401k, which puts the responsibility of putting money away every month to you. But not only that, the amount that you receive is not defined. It's called a defined contribution in other words how much you put in every month is defined but not what you get back so what if you've got your 401k and all of a sudden there's a the market drops market drops out like it did in 2007 what happens to your money too bad buddy you don't have a, a guarantee of a pension too bad. Your pension is greatly reduced. So this is the pension gamble. Uh, watch it online or look, I've got a link to it on uh, on Labor and Love Radio website uh, on Facebook. Pitting union against union. We talked a little about the situation at Disney. Um, and Amazon gets three billion. Amazon gets three billion because they say they're going to provide jobs. Um, I want to listen to a little bit of Richard Wolf. Wolf is a Marxist. 
economist and hear what he has to say about this. It's The Real News Network and I'm Ben Norton. Amazon is one of the most powerful companies in the world and it is owned by the richest man on earth. Jeff Bezos, the founder and CEO of Amazon, has a net worth that is well over $100 billion. In just one day of April in this year, Jeff Bezos' wealth increased by $12 billion. $12 billion in just one day. And now, the New York state and city government are going to use our tax dollars to help further subsidize the richest person on the planet. Amazon has announced that it will be creating a new headquarters in Queens, New York. The New York state and city government enthusiastically fought for this new project, which is known as HQ2. To attract the corporate giant to New York City, the local government offered Amazon a staggering $3 billion in tax breaks. New York State is giving Amazon $1.7 billion in grants and tax breaks, and New York City is giving an additional $1.3 billion in tax breaks. This is the biggest tax incentive package that New York State has ever given to a private company. Residents here in New York City are furious because rent is already unaffordable and real estate developers are rapidly gentrifying longtime residents out of their homes. Bringing in a new Amazon headquarters will likely pour fuel on the fire of gentrification in Queens, pushing out longtime poor residents. And meanwhile, while Amazon is getting $3 billion in tax breaks, the public transportation system here in New York City is also falling apart as social spending continues to decline. The Guardian reported this week, New York City's subway and bus services have entered death spiral. The newspaper noted that officials at the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, MTA, warned that without a major infusion of cash, without a major increase in, in local government funding, they will have to drastically cut service and or increase fares on the system, which carries around millions of people every single day. Likely next year, the MTA will increase fares, even while its services are declining. So joining us to discuss why the New York government is subsidizing one of the most powerful corporations while our own social infrastructure is falling apart is the world-renowned economist Richard Wolff. Richard Wolff is a professor emeritus of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and at the New School University. He has authored a dozen books, including most recently, Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown, and Rick's organization, Democracy at Work, has a new book out called Understanding Marxism, which you can find more information about at democracyatwork.info. Thanks for joining us, Rick. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So, Rick, let's talk about this, this story here with HQ2. Uh, why do you think the New York state and city governments are providing su such large tax breaks to bring Amazon here? What we're told from Mayor Bill de Blasio and Governor Andrew Cuomo is that they're doing this to bring 25,000 new jobs to New York City. 
But the thing is, that's actually not a lot of jobs for New York City. In fact, in 2017 alone, New York City gained over 72,000 new jobs. So 25,000 new jobs is just about four months of job growth in New York City. Don't you think that four months of job growth is, is not much for $3 billion in state and city tax breaks? What, what is your take? I agree with you, but it's actually, and I'm sad to say this, much worse than that. And let me just give you a few examples. We're not even clear that the 25,000 jobs will mean new jobs or whether they'll just move personnel from other parts of Amazon to come here, in which case New Yorkers will be subsidizing job movement for existing employees and not at all new jobs. Let me give you another example. When you give a deal like this to a corporation, let alone a super rich, super profitable one, you ought to accompany it by some sort of guarantees. It's like you hire a construction firm to build something for you. If they do the work they've promised on time, well and good, you pay them. But if they don't do it on time, if they don't meet the deadlines, well, then they have a penalty to pay, etc. This interaction between the city and uh, the Amazon Corporation is all for Amazon and none for the city. The city is to give $3 billion with the state, but what share of the profits that fall from Amazon will the city, that is the public taxpayer who provides this money, what will we be getting as our share of their profits? Answer, nothing. If they don't meet the deadline, if they don't have 25,000 jobs, or it takes them 10 years to get there, will we be compensated for having been promised something that wasn't delivered? No, there's no such involvement. There's no such commitment. And then there's even the further question, which makes me so angry at the politicians, in this case, Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio, that they're not telling us that if you take $3 billion of the city and state's money, that leaves the city and state with two options. The $3 billion would otherwise have gone for public services, but they're not gonna be available because they're being given to Amazon. That's gonna cost jobs, jobs for the city, jobs for the state, and jobs for all of the people and businesses who aren't gonna have those $3 billion spent on them. Where does that figure in the calculation? Well, I can answer the question. It's ignored. And likewise, finally, there's all the consequences of not using $3 billion, for example, on our subway system. As you rightly point out, The Guardian and any other newspaper that cares to investigate it would quickly discover that the city of New York has, if not the most filthy subway system in the world, we are certainly in contention for that dubious prize. And we're not doing anything about it, which is why people don't use the subway as much as they otherwise would, which decreases the amount of money it gets. So you get this situation that some service, like the subway, which serves billions of people, is being ignored and sacrificed to give additional profits to what is already an extremely profitable company generating the richest person on earth 
as the CEO. You put all this That was uh, Richard Wolf uh, talking with the Real News Network, uh, <clears throat> talking about what the fact that three billion dollars is being given to Jeff Bezos to bring his company there, <clears throat> what that does to the people of New York. It's Labor and Love Radio, and we're coming at you today from 2781 21st Street here in El Mero Mero, the heart of the mission. Hope you're having a good day. Hope you have some good work. Last week we featured Joan Baez. Joan Baez, is who, who has undertaken her farewell tour now and was such a seminal figure in so many ways, always, always, always fighting for social justice, bringing it up, talking about it. And in 1968, there was, or 69, there was the Woodstock, famous Woodstock music festival and uh, <clears throat> all kinds of people that were called hippies and other people <clears throat> got together on a farm in Woodstock, New York and everybody was playing the music of the time. Joan Baez stood up and sang a ballad. Perhaps she understood that the whole hippie movement was at base a uh, a working class movement, a movement of people who took one look at the future that was offered them. 40 days of, 40 years of work at uh, jobs that were none too inspiring usually. And she sang this song. More power to her. Sing one more song and we'll have an intermission. I dreamed I saw
San Diego up to I never died, says he. I never died, says he. See you in 20 minutes. Thank you. As a woman. No estoy pidiendo joyas, ni pieles, ni palacios, ni quiero que me alfombren las calles al pasar, ni princesa, ni esclava, es que ni tierras, ni riquezas, más que estar recibiendo. Tan solo estoy pidiendo sentirme bien amada, que me amen como yo amo, con fuego y con pasión. Ojalá comprendiera que estoy desesperada buscando quien se entregue. Yo. Mi princesa ni esclava, simplemente mujer Ni dueña de la noche, ni dueña de la noche, ni del amanecer Mi princesa ni esclava, simplemente mujer 
mujer soy. I am a woman. Disculparme, mujer, soy 
You're acting so funny. What's wrong, Billy? My doctor says I have Skittles pox. Taste the rainbow. This is an actual thing a white person can buy. As a person of color, there's actually a huge array of products and activities that are just not free. Sorry about This it. is an actual thing a white person can buy. As a person of color, there's actually a huge array of products and activities that are just not for you. It's a white, white, white world and we get to live in it. You basically won, like, the racial lottery with that lack of melanin. Here's a few things white people take for granted. Like flesh-colored band-aids that actually resemble flesh. This is a nude bra. I don't even think I know white people that are this color. This is the darkest I could find. I flunked out of algebra twice and everyone was shocked. That's racist. White people can change their hair and Surprisingly, no one feels the need to touch it. They just creep in real slow and I'll be like, mm, nope, I'm doing Bruce Lee karate up in here. I'm in Trader Joe's. Another thing that white people totally take for granted, they can own gun-shaped things. This is a gun-shaped flash drive. Gun-shaped knives? It's already a knife. Why is it shaped like a gun? Like if I point at it, see, that's weird. Like that, I could tell that was uncomfortable for us. I would totally get shot if I was just putting this right into my MacBook Air. And white people get to be on money, as if we don't see their faces everywhere else. They call them dead presidents, but some of these guys are just dead white guys. Like this guy? Who is that? President number nothing. All we have is a Sacagawea coin. It was a big splash, and then it slowly started disappearing, much like the Native American population. Wizards, dwarves, elves. Not one single Korean in the whole film. There's room to throw in, you know, like, I don't know, a Latino hobbit. It would be fun. 
Their cuisine would be so much more dynamic. White people can have full-length arguments with cops. Are you out of your mind? Did you not see me out the light? You crazy son of a I knew a dude who messed up a handshake Spanish guy had to move out of the neighborhood. That didn't really happen, but it sounds like it could've. Hey, this is comfortable. No one's gonna shoot me. Indian is not a language. They get on the dance floor, it's charming when they look stupid. This is what privilege looks like on a white person. Are you a white person that takes things for granted? Do you feel like this video took you for granted? Leave us a gun-shaped comment below. Don't worry, we'll know who it's from. The only person of color who gets to be on any money is Sacagawea, you know, and, and our baby. How'd the baby get to be on there? Do you even know who that baby is? What'd the baby do? The baby didn't do anything, okay? A space where you can make a difference. 5,000 years of Chinese music and dance in one night. for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, at the negotiating table where you work,
You're on the menu. They're talking about you. They're talking about your life. They're talking about your time in this life. Never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Okay, bye to everybody. Hello to everybody. six o'clock welcome to the mutiny radio comedy festival here at mutiny radio yay you're all here yay we have an amazing night of comedy prepared for you five hours of amazing people and we are starting out tonight with the newbies show all of these comedians have been doing comedy for two years or less oh my god they're so funny you won't even believe it your host though what an amazing human being she is she's been doing comedy for over five years she runs a show up in portland called comic strip what an amazing lovely human being you guys have for a host put your hands together right now for wendy weiss thank you guys so much i just want to make one tiny correction i actually stopped hosting comic strip i should have told you that pam and it's now chris etrick still at the funhouse lounge but you guys welcome to the two years or less show my name is wendy weiss um i ate half of uh, an edible earlier and i was like hey this isn't doing a whole lot and i made uh the number one mistake and that was eating the rest of it so we'll see how the rest of this goes you guys i honestly i should not ever be getting high because what happens is i just 
lose everything like everything that I own just goes by the wayside because there's a hierarchy of needs when you get high that you just sort of revert back through and like phone like the first things on that list I'm going to say are eating fucking and the album time by ELO uh, are the top like three things and then the things that don't matter anymore are things like my phone and my wallet uh, god forbid an umbrella so all those things fucking just all disappear so we'll see how this goes you guys I think it's gonna be great um, I'm from Portland I'm from Portland Oregon and uh, yeah thank you there's a lot of us here um San Francisco <laughs> there's there's a lot of us here Fucking, we're all rep in Portland. Uh, you guys have like better homeless people than we do. I think we have homeless people in Portland too. But your guys' homeless people here in San Francisco are like real go-getters. Like last time I was here, there was this dude who got up at eight in the fucking morning, like every single morning, probably seven, because he started this at eight, and he what he started doing was screaming at eight o'clock in the fucking morning. Okay, and then he would go all day until like five o'clock in the evening okay from eight o'clock to five o'clock this dude was screaming and people in Portland are homeless because they can't get up till noon like that's why we have homeless people in Portland um yeah uh, I should probably be homeless by that token I can't get up until like at least two and uh I went to college for philosophy so uh, that's why I'm a stripper now, so. <laughs> uh, I am a stripper now. I gave myself a promotion recently. I uh, got myself a boob job. You can't really see it right now because you're listening to me on the radio, so. Uh, but I did, I got a boob job, and I have, like, still not, it was recently, so I still don't really have, like, any idea how to use boobs yet, like, whatsoever. I don't know how they work. I'm just running around at work being like, get a load of these hamburgers boys like I don't know what you guys like to hear about these things so uh, we'll, we'll find out <laughs> um, the doctor that I went to though like it was kind of disconcerting because the doctor like his office was just like covered in like uh just like pieces of driftwood and like uh, stones and crystals like all over the office were all of these crystals and I can't really explain how disconcerting it is to know that the person who's about to cut you open believes in the healing power of crystals <laughs> I don't want a doctor who believes in crystals I want a doctor who believes in science and like that is it that's not okay for you like it's okay for me like I do believe in crystals I'm a stripper so that's totally completely fine for me <laughs> but not you, sir. Um, <laughs> I do, I believe in crystals. I, be I do. I should have told you to make one tiny correction. I actually stopped hosting comic strip. I should have told you that. Apply now for the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2019. Applications open until November 30th for 25 shows in five days. 40 comics chosen March 1st through 5th, 2019 for the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. It's our fourth annual, and we hope you apply from whatever part of the nation or international comedy scene you come from. Apply now through November 30th. Go to our website, www.mutinyradio.fm, for more details. Aloha, mutineers. Stolowitz here. 
people ask me, Dave, why do you spend so much time listening to MutinyRadio.fm? Well, the answer is simple to me. It's the love I find here. We've got so many great programs here. There's something for everybody, surely. Well, maybe not the Hitler crew, but you know everyone else. Let me tell you about some of my favorite shows here at Mutiny you may not have heard about. Labor and Love with Bill Morgan is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 noon. Bill is passionate about labor, jazz, and solidarity, and he tells you how it is. No BS. If somebody gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. I always learn a lot from Labor and Love. It's educational and inspirational. The Common Thread Collective is every Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. with legendary octogenarian Haight-Ashbury activist Diamond Dave. With help from his friends, Dave talks news, wisdom, progressive activism, and spirituality. There's also open mic time for music, poetry, and stories. Comics gotta hold off till happy hour, though. Oh, and check out Flat Black Plastic with Scott Walker, Saturdays from noon to 2. The title says it all. Classic vinyl albums with no apologies. Great stuff. You can listen in live to these fine programs on mutinyradio.fm or download the podcast at your convenience on Apple iTunes. What a deal. Authentic, real San Francisco love. That's what keeps our ship afloat. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shit. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRatio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRatio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> For all your space chicken sci-fi comedy non-political humor needs, go to timstesseract.com. Read fiction about the future of San Francisco after the water wars of 2121 in Jane 6. Ask a Jedi for important life hacks. Eat flesh with the bear exoskeleton contessa. And check your horror horoscope on Horoscopia. 
Updated every three parsecs. Timstesseract.com. Timstesseract.com. Everybody should listen to Mutiny Radio at mutinyradio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. Clap Lap Plastic, Mutiny Radio, Dead of Him. So 
Fuck me, you think he was got a long way to go. 